0: your host, Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode, like I've done on the last couple, Berg's Brain's Bits and Wherefore Art Thou Brian Cranston, I'm going to tweak the standard format a bit and post what I'm calling the Bob, the B-O-B-B, the best of Berg's Brain. Figured these bobs would be good for longtime listeners who may have forgotten some of the stories and great for new listeners who want to check out a few shorter, quicker hits. And the Bob has special significance for me as Bob was my dad's name. And Bob, or is what my mom and aunts and uncles and friends used to call him, Bobby. Well, my dad, Bob or Bobby, he passed away about 10 years ago and would have turned 100 June of last year. So for the first B-O-B-B, Bob, best of Berg's brain, I went back to episode one, Scrabbled Eggs, for a story that my dad, Bob, a.k.a. Bobby, loved every time I told it, and a story so many of you have shared your love and enjoyment of. And it's a story so real, so true, and what it always makes me laugh out loud. So, hope you enjoy this segment I'm calling 20,000 Leagues Under Wilt's Shorts. When I was nine, we went to Hawaii, and in lieu of a luau, and by the way, whenever I hear the word luau, I hearken back, because no one ever seems to hearken forward, to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Whose given name was Lou Al Cinder, and how Kareem single-handedly, because for some reason doing something double-handedly, I guess, is meaningless. Lou Al Cinder slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar changed the game of basketball in two amazing ways. First, Kareem, back when he was Al Cinder, started playing basketball in college at UCLA for legendary coach John Wooden, the Wizard of Westwood, and Wooden was old school. Total preparation, attention to detail, to the point he taught his players how to properly put on their socks and tie their shoes. And players back in the 60s didn't question, didn't complain. They just let this little wire-rimmed wizard with his trademark rolled-up game program instruct them on putting on socks and tying their shoes. How many ways are there to put on socks and tie your shoes? But I guess you win an unprecedented 10 championships in 11 seasons, including 7 consecutive, you get to tell college kids how to dress. But what a different time. Can you imagine the Wizard of Westwood trying to teach LeBron how to don his socks and tie his shoes? In a short, to-the-point LeBron tweet, the Wizard of Westwood would be labeled the weirdo of Westwood never to coach again. But back to Alcindor slash Jabbar and how he changed the game. See, NCAA officials felt he was too dominant a player because he could dunk the ball at will. They felt he'd be unstoppable. So they changed the rules to forbid dunking in college games. The Alcindor rule, as it was called held from 1967 to 1975 no, it was rescinded and players were allowed to dunk again. Now can't you just see these milk-toast, crew-cut, wire-rimmed glasses wearing bleach-white big-time supporters of the Vietnam War NCAA officials sitting around the table in 67 complaining how we gotta get Dunkin' out of the game because it's ruining the integrity and the only Dunkin' in America should be for powdery white donuts. So these racist bastards outlawed dunking. They outlawed one of the greatest plays and most exciting moments of basketball because they feared a tall, graceful, angelic, gifted, divine black player could take the integrity out of a white-invented, peach-basket, flat-footed, set-shotted, right-handed-only dribbling, Chuck Taylor, high-top-wearing, short-shorted, Indiana Hoosier-Daddy-Hillbilly hoopin' game. Articles I read on the topic go on to say, and I quote, As a result of the rule taking away dunking, Alcindor developed a good hook shot. Which he used effectively during his playing days in college and the NBA. A good hook shot? He didn't develop a good hook shot. He developed a great hook shot. An outrageous hook shot. A one of a kind hook shot. An unstoppable fucking hook shot, one that was known as the Skyhook shot, or as people who know the game simply say, the Skyhook, because you don't need the word shot at the end of the word Skyhook. Skyhook tells you all you goddamn need. See, in basketball history, there's only a few epic shots. Early on, when it was a segregated whites-only game, you had the set shot, which was what slow, earthbound, gravity-challenged white guys did for the first 30 years of the NBA by simply shooting the ball two-handed from a set or flat-footed stance. Sorry I missed that edge-of-your-seat nonstop excitement. I have this sixth sense, this odd, tingly feeling that if Trump had won a second election... He and Kentucky's own bluegrass, blueblood, Mitch the Bitch McConnell, would have passed a law requiring the set shot be the only shot in basketball, because America would have been made great again if we just go back to the set shot. Now the next innovative shot was the jump shot. Black players who could actually jump, unlike their grounded white brethren, jumped into the air and then shot the ball, providing a better angle to shoot and avoid getting blocked. The next great shot was the finger roll. A delicate flick of the wrist, dropping the ball just over the front end of the rim, like a pole vaulter precariously clearing the bar by a millimeter. And this delicate flick was invented by a literal giant, seven foot one Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, who scored over thirty-one thousand points in his long illustrious career, scored hundred points in a single game, maintained a paltry fifty point per game average for an entire goddamn season. But the mind-blowing stat for all fans, at least male fans, is not how many points Wilt scored or blocks Wilt blocked, it's that Wilt still in his tell-all book, A View from Above, allegedly banged over 20,000 women in his, some would argue, more illustrious off-the-court career. Now hypothetically, let's just say that Wilt started sleeping with women at age 15, and the 20,000 number was reached by the time he wrote his book at age 55. That means he had to sleep with 500 different women every year from ages 15 to 55. So over approximately 40 years, and isn't approximately a great word, no stress, no anxiety, no need to be exact, screw exact. Just be in the ballpark, within reason, here or there, roughly, more or less, in the region of, in the neighborhood of, horseshoes and hand grenades, kind of close. So for Will to hit the unimaginable total of 20,000 sexual partners over the course of approximately 40 years, he would have had to sleep with two women a day. That's a lot of fucking finger rolls. Now, in my situation, besides my wife, I know a total of nine women in the world, and none of them, not one of the ten, including my wife, do I have any chance in hell to sleep with. 20,000? 20 goddamn thousand? Hell, I haven't had 20,000 erections in my entire life. And the crazy thing is, Wilt Distill and I go way back. I met Wilt Chamberlain and I saw him naked. With a sentence like that, thinking I should have started off this Michigan story with that grabber instead of the not-so-memorable, I grew up in Cincinnati and my mom was an English teacher. Could be wrong, but thinking I met Wilt Chamberlain and saw him naked might have got me a few more sponsors for Berg's Brain. So for those of you too young to know, Wilt Triblin started off his professional career playing for the Harlem Globetrotters, 1958 to 59. Now, I wasn't born when Wilt played for the Globetrotters, but I have fond memories as a young boy seeing the Globetrotters with hilarious showman Geese Osby, Metal Ark Lemon, and that crazy, dribbling, ball-handling magician Curly Neal. A couple things always struck me as odd about the Globetrotters. First, Scheduling. See, scheduling was clearly not a big priority for the Globetrotters. Starting way back in 1952, they always played the same team. The Washington Generals. Every game, every year. Who are we playing tonight, coach? The Generals? Again? Seriously? No other teams around? No one wants a shot at the goddamn Globetrotters? Shit, I gotta guard that fat white dude with B.O., onion, breath, and bad gas one more game? I'm gonna lose my shit! Now the second, even more outlandish oddity, was that the Generals, starting in 1952, were coached by player manager Red Klotz, and during his tenure as player coach, the Generals lost 2,495 straight games during a 20-year run. Then on January 5th, 1971, the Generals did the unthinkable, the unimaginable. They beat the undefeated Harlem Globetrotters 100-99 on a last-second shot by none other than Red Klotz himself. And while that was front-page news from Maine to Baja, what was more amazing to me was that Red Cots had managed to keep his job in the midst of a 20-year, zero-win, 2,495-game losing streak. Hell, today a coach starts off 0-5, he's looking over his shoulder more often than a gazelle drinking out of a watering hole in the Serengeti. So after a stint with the Trotters, Wilt next played for the Philadelphia and later San Francisco, now Golden State Warriors, 59-65. Wilt then played for the Philadelphia 76ers, 65 to 68, and finished out his career with the Lakers, 68 to 73. Now, I was born in 1960, and five years later, when I was five, the Philadelphia 76ers and Wilt Chamberlain came to Cincinnati, my hometown, a town well-known for two illustrious things, Pete Rose and Chili. Now, not a day goes by that I don't question, wonder, contemplate, why oh why did I ever leave that baseball role model culinary utopia? What a combo. What a daily double. What an exacta, if you will. Charlie Hustle, Peter Edward Rose, and Skyline Chili. Place a few wagers, chow down a five-way, and for those of you not from Cincinnati, that's chili, spaghetti, onions, beans, and cheese. Throw on a bib right about now, as I know your mouth's watering. Then you kick back, throw another Hunsky on a few ponies, and head to bed for an eye-watering, paint-peeling Chili Farts and Flatulent Fest. Which, when you think about it, when you analyze it, when you kick it around... Flatulence is the pinnacle, the penultimate, when it comes to passing gas. A fart can be funny, a fart can be smelly, a fart can be silent but deadly, but a fart can never be flatulence. It can only dream of being flatulence. A fart is described as an omission of gas from the anus that is often laughed about. Flatulence is defined as the accumulation of gas in the elementary canal that can be embarrassing and make you feel uncomfortable around each other. Just saying the word flatulence takes you to a whole different level. Sounds like the definition of flatulence should be a fart so massive it flattens anything in its path. In other words, the Hiroshima or Nagasaki of farts. Look, a fart's not bad. A fart's nothing to turn up your nose at. A fart can make a match held near your ass shoot out flames entertaining your buddies for days. But flatulence compared to farting? It's like an eagle and a crow. Both have wings. Both can fly. But one is the majestic emblem of a country and was known for its annoying caw! at 6 a.m. every fucking morning. So two birds in the hand, but very different in the bush. And you know that phrase, a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush? (laughs) That's retail. Anyone of Middle Eastern descent, a Jew, a Palestinian, an Egyptian, not a one ever pays retail. So in Israel, or Palestine, or Egypt, a bird in the hand can be worth 1.5 to 1.7 in the bush. And for Jews, a bird can go as high as 1.9 if it's a burning bush. But two? What are you? Mashuka? And back to farting. It's interesting, if not a bit odd, that when we fart, we say we're passing gas. Passing it to who? I remember playing pass the potato at the family picnic. I remember playing pass the football with my dad. I remember passing a car on the freeway last week. At many a meal, I've been asked to pass the corn, pass the bread, pass the wine. But I've never asked, hey, Uncle Mort, could you pass the gas? Although Uncle Mort seems to consistently and repeatedly pass the gas even without the query. So back to 1965 and me as a five-year-old little pitcher witnessing a naked, seven-foot-one wilt Stilt. See, the Sixers were in town to play our NBA team, the Cincinnati Royals. And back then, teams didn't have fancy-schmancy workout facilities, so the Sixers held a workout at the JCC, the local Jewish community center. This was a place where you could shoot some baskets, grab a Dr. Brown's cream soda, and see old, naked, overweight, cigar-smoking Jewish men with these horrific, hanging, wrinkled turkey giblets dangling between their legs, causing you to wonder why the Moyle, who circumcised these altacockers years earlier, didn't take a little more off the bottom to account for the unstoppable, unflappable gravitational pull pulling these Prussian prunes downward toward the center of the earth. So this local Jewish guy, a.k.a. Big Macher, Ronnie Grinker, was a sports agent. And if you think it's cool now to be a sports agent, back then, hoo that guy was hot shit. And Ronnie had that classic Jewish sports agent look, snazzy suit, gold chains, gold watch, gold Jewish store, and gold high necklaces. Hell, he even drove a goddamn gold Cadillac. So Ronnie represented some of the Royals, and he arranged for the Sixers to practice at the JCC, and he let a few of us on the inside know. So here I am, a five-year-old kid, a few feet away from Chet the Jet Walker because he was so fast. Billy the Kangaroo Kid Cunningham because he had hops for a white boy. How the bulldog rear because of his game face scowl, and of course, Wilt the stilt. It doesn't get any better than that. So they finish practice, walk by us, smile, wave, and head downstairs to shower. My brothers, who are 14 and 17 at the time, hand me a pen, piece of paper, and tell me to run down to the locker room to get Wilt's autograph. I jam down the stairs like a bat out of hell to find Wilt. So I make my way into the locker room like one of those irritating, overachieving kid reporters for Nickelodeon News, and the guys are just starting to come out of the shower. Naked. Now remember, my only frame of reference, the only other naked that I'd seen in my five years on planet Earth, were five foot two to five foot seven aging Jewish men with penises the size of that classic Jewish pastry, a rolled up rugelach. For those of you not versed in Jewish desserts, typical rugula, an inch, maybe two. So as I make my way through the jet, the kangaroo kid, the bulldog, and other gigantic men, I felt like I was walking through a car wash with those suspended swinging ribbon-like cloth strip cleaning things. Except these suspended ribbon-like cloth strip cleaning things were massive swinging penises. I'm carrying a pen and paper, and what I needed was a goddamn machete. I felt like Joseph Conrad in the heart of darkness. Suddenly, around the corner, here comes Wilt. And here comes Wilt's penis. Which was significantly bigger than I'd expected, because it, it was significantly bigger than me. So significant that that Loch Ness monster required two attendants trailing behind him like bridesmaid holding the train of an incredibly long wedding gown. A Princess Diana kind of wedding gown. This thing was so long, it could have been used as the official rope in the tug-of-war world championships. So, Wilt and his John Coltrane saunter over to his locker, where I'm nervously waiting. But nothing could have prepared me for what I experienced next. As Wilt's enormous, gigantic penis tumbled down, surrounding me as I looked up to see where it started, I felt like I was stranded at the bottom of a 30-foot well where a kind-hearted fireman dangled a thick rope above to rescue me. Now, I'd heard that Wilt's nickname was the Big Dipper, because in high school he had to dip his head when going through doorways. From my present five-year-old vantage point, it seemed to me the Big Dipper probably had a second, more appropriate meaning, and I was pretty damn certain this beast would have also had to duck its head to get through a doorway. And back to the 20,000 women Wilt allegedly slept with for a sec, I guess I can see how an NBA legend like Wilt Chamberlain especially during the free love 60s, could have had access to thousands of women. But here's where I still have a few doubts. First, for any man to get an erection, blood vessels have to relax and open to allow blood to flow from the heart to the penis. The amount of blood that would have been drained from Wilt's heart necessary to create Wilt's erections would surely have caused a massive heart attack or a stroke. At the very least, the loss of blood from key organs to sustain will erections for 20,000 women, two a day for 40 years, would have given the Big Dipper narcolepsy. Second, and more importantly, I have a really hard time believing there are actually 20,000 women in the world who could get that thing inside them. Look, my wife and I have two kids, and I've had the good fortune of witnessing both births, so I have first-hand knowledge that the vagina is an incredible body part the part of parts as far as I'm concerned, with the amazing elasticity to make a 6-inch penis feel snug during intercourse, and a mere 9 months later, expand to accommodate the birth of a child with the average head circumference of 13 and a half goddamn inches. Now my kids, like most kids, were average-sized births, 7 pounds, 20 inches in length. 7 pounds, 20 inches were the dimensions of just a head of Wilt's penis. If Wilt Chamberlain had been Jewish and named Wilt Humberlin with a Hanukkah-like sound, at Wilt's bris, they would have needed a minion of moils, a mob of moils, a miraculous mile of moils to lop the top off Wilt's stilt. So back at Wilt's locker, dazed and in an extreme state of shock, I shift left a few feet to avoid Wilt's anaconda, tentatively reach up and hand-wilt the pen and paper. He smiles, flips his penis over his shoulder and ties it around his waist like he's tying the belt of a robe, grabs the pen and paper, and signs his autograph. On one hand, I'm ecstatic. On the other, dismayed, as now I have to plot my escape route through the land of the giant swinging car wash penises. So I'm zigging and zagging like a first-year army recruit on an obstacle course, absorbing a few glancing yet painful blows to the head, but I make it through and jam back upstairs. I see my brothers, wave the paper, run over and show them Wilt's autograph. But instead of happiness, I get a look of horrible disgust. What's the matter? I yelled. They hand me back the paper. Wilt's hand was wet from the shower and that wet got on the paper. So the autograph was completely smudged and illegible. I was crushed, destroyed. The disappointment of Wilt's wet autograph stayed with me for years. So jump ahead to 1991. I'm now a 31-year-old man, and it's the very year Wilt's autobiography comes out with his claim of stripping 20,000 women. And I knew firsthand that number was a lie, a sham, a miscalculation, because the total wasn't 20,000. It was 20,001, because when I was five, Wilt fucked me, too. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to the Best of Berg's Brain Bob episode, and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, guitar legend, and NBA groupie Jeff Pod Miller. If you like Berg's Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out our website at bergsbrain.buzzsprout.com. And if you want to touch base, email me at bergsbrainpod at gmail.com. Lastly, this episode of Berg's Brain is dedicated to one of my favorite people in the world, my Aunt Miriam, who passed away a few days ago. Love you, Aunt Miriam. Rest in peace. Here's one of your favorites.